Welcome to Living from the Soul. This is your host, Sam Tarode. Today I'm speaking with two people who have just published memoirs about changing their beliefs around religion and faith. Dave Warnock is the author of Childish Things. It's his life story of becoming a pastor and then leaving the church. Dave is the co-host of That GD Show on YouTube, and he's a frequent speaker and podcast guest on the theme of Dying Out Loud. He's joined here by Alice Gretchen, author of Wayward, a memoir of spiritual warfare and sexual purity. Alice is the creator of the website daretodoubt.org, which offers resources for people recovering from harmful belief systems. She's also an actress with an extensive resume in movies and television. You'll have to read her book to hear the whole story on how she went from homeschooled to Hollywood. Please excuse the variations in sound quality on this episode. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dave Warnock and Alice Gretchen. This will definitely be more informal than my usual interviews, but that's fine. Well, it has Same to be because we're at the beach and uh, <laughs> I haven't done hair and makeup today. So, but Alice is like her, I, I her usual adorable self. The humidity down here is making it my efforts futile, but yeah, here we are. <laughs> Thank you for having us. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Well, let me explain how this came to be. I've known Dave since about 2016. We were in a a support group for former fundamentalists here in Nashville. And I've been waiting for his book to come out for a couple of years, excitedly awaiting. And it finally came out. So I got it right here. Ah, look at you. It's uh, Childish Things, the memoir of Dave Warnock. And when I... When I took a look at that, I saw a blurb on the back from Alice Gretchen, and I thought, well, who is this? I've got to check out her book. And so I ended up, so your memoir is called Wayward. And I ended up reading both books at the same time, even though they're not connected, they have a lot of relevance to each other. Wow. No, I'd imagine it'd be be reading like my dad's version and Mm. sort of like my version at the same time. (laughs) Close enough anyway. Yeah, the parallels are, are that my, my parallel is more closely connected to her parents than her. Mm. So she's like the, you know, the second generation of it. Yeah, and I'm in the middle between you two. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> that's fascinating to read them both together. That would be interesting. Uh, and I'm a writer and I've, I tried to write a memoir once and ended up feeling it was unpublishable, but it was good for me to write it and get it out so I know it's a very therapeutic process to go through. But I wonder for both of you to write something so raw and personal, how did you do it? (laughs) You go. Wow, yeah, Um, I've been asked that, yeah, because mine is very vulnerable. I mean, I I just, I pull off, I pull off the cover and just let it rip. And um, Mm -hmm. In fact, I wrote more than that ended up in the in the finished version. My editor was pretty ruthless and she just she took a lot out that she felt like distracted from the narrative flow. And um, but it was a lot, a lot more detail than even finished up. But I don't know. I felt for me, it it felt I felt it was important to get to tell the truth and just just, just tell the story um, blemishes and all and not try to construct um, some kind of a narrative that I wanted people to see, but just to see that I was a very, very flawed human 
trying my best to make my way in the world and depending on a God to help me who never helped me. That, that was kind of a thread that I found through the book and I kind of identified it as I was writing it, mm-hmm. if you will. Yeah. Yes. It's, um, for me, I wrote, it took me way longer to write my book than it took Dave to write his. I've been working on and off my memoir for nearly 10 years and I wasn't sure I was going to publish it. Kind of like what you just said, like I, I finished it and then I realized like, oh, maybe it's not publishable. Um, and like Dave, like I also had to trim out a lot. And I think that, um, my book, my, my final draft was three times the length of what was actually published. Woo. Um, no years you 10 years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We, we got to have an uncut version sometime. Right. The director's cut. No, like I, it, it's hard to edit your own life story. Cause I wasn't sure where to end it. Like I'm still here. So my story is technically still going. So like, how do you, for, I'm really glad that I got it all out for me though. Kind of like what you were saying, like it was really cathartic just for me to be able to put a chronology to my own timeline and be able to kind of connect dots that I hadn't seen, like putting my story outside of myself Mm -hmm. um, through, of course, my own subjective lens. And I make very clear, you know, everyone else in my family would have a very different version of our story. But for my story, it was really helpful to kind of put it outside myself and then decide like, if I'm going to publish this, why am I going to publish it? Like, what are my motives? Mm -hmm. Um, Ultimately, my motive ended up being first and foremost that uh, I knew that it would help a lot of people who are also going through a similar arc of um, deconversion. Uh, And I think after that, like one of the best pieces of writing advice that I ever read, and I feel so bad because I can't remember where I first heard this, was the first draft is for you. The second draft is for um your loved ones and the third draft is for your critics and enemies and so with that in mind <laughs> it really helped me edit and craft um a narrative that i felt um would make sense to a reader in a way that would hopefully be as enjoyable as it was helpful and you certainly accomplished that too like you had you were working with someone right as you yeah. were writing and yeah. yeah you guys did an incredible job i was blown away yeah. by your honesty like yeah, that's, I mean, I've, I've always kind of been a vulnerable person at, at any way. I kind of, I am who I am and I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily think that's great all the time. You know, I, I, I see myself uh, a lot more critically than a lot of other people do, but I've always felt like it's important just to be honest and um, for whatever, whatever comes from that. Um, I like what Anne Lamott says about drafts as you were talking. She's shitty first draft. She says, <laughs> you know, you get the first draft, just write it, get it out, get it out on the page and then work on it. And I think that was the key to finally get some traction for mine. I was overthinking it the first year or so, just kind of, you know, trying to think I had to make every, every paragraph perfect, every chapter perfect. Mm-hmm. And, and I realized finally, no, just get it out, just vomit it out on the page or the iPad, if you will, yeah. for me, and uh, and then just come back and rework it. And, and of course, Jennifer Cates, the the contributing author for me, um, she she and I would collaborate every every week, uh, once or twice a week, and kind of package everything up and trim it and bring scenes to life and dialogue and things like that. And that's when it started. When we, when I when I started learning how to do that, then it started taking shape for me, and I was able to get in a, into a really ri- a good rhythm and flow. And so, yeah, I learned a lot about writing in the process, actually. 
Yeah, yeah. And it's very hard to resist the urge to edit as you write. Oh my God, that's the worst thing. <laughs> yeah. It is. It's like a, it's it's like a surefire way to stymie what progress you're making. Like get it out first. You can always fine tune it later, but it's hard. <laughs> right. And I'll describe my sense of the two books to you. With Dave's, I felt like I was on the back porch with him as he's just telling the story of his whole life. And then with Alice's, yours was like a, a work of art. It was, I felt you were, you were so poetic and the scenes just, yeah. uh, I would not want to try to compete with you as a wordsmith. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Very poetic Aww. is, a, I think that's a good descriptor for her because her, her wording is, uh, I, and it's funny because I, I read, I was just reading back through some of your reviews on Amazon and I haven't gotten very many yet because I'm just now getting it out. But someone said, I wanted to just tell the story. I didn't want, you know, don't, don't clutter it up with flowing curtains and stuff. And I'm thinking, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> it makes it great. No, some people, some people really don't like prose or flowery language, yeah. you know, yeah. why not make it interesting while I'm telling it? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> It's just not, right. yeah. I don't think there's one style that the whole world is going to like. So it's fine. my my goal was to to hopefully get the reader in the room with me. So when you say mm -hmm. when you say that, Sam, it means a lot because that was exactly my goal. I want someone to feel like they're sitting down, having a drink, having a cigar, if you will, yeah, and just talking. You know, you tell your story, I'll tell mine. I wanted to. I wanted the reader to feel like they're in this in that space with me. And so I'm glad that came through. Yeah, well, you both succeeded beautifully. Where I had trouble when I attempted to write a memoir, I didn't want to go back and paint scenes from my life. I was more just interested in tracing the history of my beliefs. But to make it work as a memoir, you really have to go paint scenes and recreate conversations with people. And both of you did that, and it, it seems so difficult to me that I'm really impressed. Oh, yeah, thank you. No, it is difficult because it's, um, and I say this in a disclaiming author's note at the beginning of my book, it's like when your memoir rides that line between fact and fiction, yeah. because yeah. you're telling only one side of your interpretation of the truth. And it is the truth. It's your truth. But it's very, you know, time, time and other people's influence and your own influence can change, mm -hmm. literally change your memory. And that makes it really scary to recreate dialogue and put words in people's mouths. Um, and you're like, maybe they didn't say it quite like that. Or maybe that's just how I heard it. Would you yeah. imagine they said that, you know, it's hard. It, it feels risky. And I just had to accept that, like, you know, the, I, I just had to make peace with um, taking responsibility for how I interpreted things, which I think is a more empowering way to approach life as a whole. And I learned that through writing my memoir, actually. Like, it's mm -hmm. crazy what writing will, will teach you in the process, kind of like what you were just saying. But yeah, just to always remember that every, every interpretation of what we're perceiving is subjective. Um, and I find that to be a helpful. Yeah, I, I'm anticipating if, if I get pushback from people in the story, who say things like that's not how that conversation was or that's not what happened right, then, no memoir. that's I'd exactly right <laughs> i'm ready to say you know yeah. what that's how i remember it i also said at the beginning that some conversations have been changed if you've got a different story to tell have at it you know write your own book i'll, I'll read it as well but i'm not again i'm not worried about that i just i've, I've felt like i've made it a point to not 
to not try to make it sound like this is exactly what happened line by line, scene by scene. This is uh, a story arc and it was important to me to get the primary elements in, in it and, and not try to tell every detail of everything. Because I had to reach further back in time than you did. You did. You're being so young, but I'm reaching back 40 and 50 years. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I was fascinated that things would 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 open up in my memory bank as I was recreating the story. And I, I oh yeah, that happened or that. And so it was kind of fascinating to see it unfold as I was unfolding it. What has the reaction been so far from people who you write about? And I, and I know with Alice's book, in the afterward, you do talk about your family's reaction, <laughs> which was very surprising in a good way, what you described there. Because the whole time I was reading it, I thought, oh, my yes. goodness. Yes, that's what I felt the whole time I was writing <laughs> it. Um, I remember when I gave them this? the first draft, before I started submitting it to different publishers, I remember I gave it uh, the draft to my parents and the rest of my family first. And it was like... Uh, one of the hardest things I think I've ever done. Um, I was sobbing. I was on a FaceTime with them and I was sobbing when I said, I think it's time for you guys to read it because it's like ready to be read by other people now. Um, and it's going to change throughout the editing process. But uh, I also want you to feel like if there's anything in here, you're like hard no about, like, please let me know about it so we can work together to try to find a way um, of either cutting it or reframing it in a way that you feel is a bit more fair. Um, there wasn't too much collaboration. They didn't have too, too many notes to give, which is both a relief and also a little, um, a little hard because that doesn't necessarily mean they completely agree with everything I say. And I would have liked to perhaps include a little bit more of their perspectives, but at the same time, like I, I respect if they just would rather not comment on some things. So that's totally fine. And uh, memoir aside, just the fact that you know, I, I left the faith that I was raised in and still have a close relationship with my family. Um, I'm, I know how fortunate I am to have that. Um, so I don't know, like it was interesting when my book came out hearing from people who I haven't heard from in years, like since I was a little kid, um, definitely some people like hit me up through social media. I just been like, oh my gosh, like I remember you and I remember your, your parents and um, that's a trip. Mostly all, all very kind things, um, which is a relief, of course. <laughs> So yeah, it's it's overwhelmingly been a pretty positive response, and maybe maybe the more negative responses are yet to come. I don't know. I'm I'm certainly mentally. Ooh, hold for sound. I think there's a passing plane. Okay. Airplane go by. <laughs> um. Anyways, I think I'm prepared for some some more pushback <laughs> should it come, but uh, it's done. You know, like it's out there. It's not. I can't do anything a whole lot about it now anyway. Yeah, mine's really not. I haven't gotten any feedback yet because mine's really kind of not even fully released. I've kind of just, you know, put it out there in a few places and let some people know, but I haven't like publicized it um, fully because I keep waiting on the hardcover to be synced up with Amazon. So that's still not happened yet, but uh, it's, get, it's getting out there. I, I didn't release it to my family or anybody for their eyes. Um, I may regret that. Um, yeah. I think I treated everyone in my, in my story fairly and I've gotten uh, good feedback from people that think I did that. Um, so I feel comfortable with the way that I told the story and, and everyone in it, you know, how I treated them. If there is pushback, um, 
I'll, I'll pull in another Anne, Anne Lamott quote I like. If people in your story don't like the way they were, were presented, they should have behaved better. And so uh, I think that that I may call on that. Yeah. No, I'm not a parent yet, but I, I have this like haunting karmic refrain in my mind, like raise your kid as though they're going to write a memoir oh, about yeah. you. Um, and it's like, I, I don't know, it's probably not, it's probably going to completely fall to the wayside if and when I ever actually become a parent, because it, it just looks hard. Mm. Anyway, you slice it, never mind without worrying, they're going to write a book about you and all your, your regrets. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I think the feedback I've gotten is that I was way harder on myself than I was any other character in the book. Right. You know, I told some truth that would make them not be presented in the best light, you know, in terms of, of looking at if, if an outsider looking at, at how we interacted and what happened, but it, it was the actual truth and it was, it was how things went down. So I just have to be true to that and trust, you know, trust God to do that. No, I'm just, I can't, I can't help myself. <laughs> uh, so I just think that, I think that as they read, if they read the whole thing, they'll realize at the end that I was being fair, I was being generous, and again, I was, I threw myself under the bus a whole lot more than I did anyone else. That's, I, I really do believe that. Uh, that's how it felt to me. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure there's way more you could have said there, there were deleted scenes. Yes, there were. There were. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're, they'll be on the special features of the next edition. Yeah. You two both come from a Pentecostal Christian background which is a little foreign to me because I actually grew up in kind of an anti-Pentecostal church. We were so focused on logic and reason, just studying the Bible and a distrust of emotions. Yeah, our wow. emotion-based is Alice really, I think, presents that more so in her book than because you had those mystical uh, spiritual experiences. I didn't really dwell on that a whole lot in mine. I mean, it was clearly that was the water I swam in, but, but I, because I did get into ministry throughout a good part of mine, I was more uh, focused on uh, talking about the inner workings of church life and the behind the scenes stuff and the, uh, the pastoral ministry element of things that, that was a big part of my experience. Well, Dave, you actually spoke in tongues, but Alice just had to fake it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I got the real thing. <laughs> and apparently I still have it because I, I can still speak in tongues, even though I have no Holy Spirit in me. Or I, I guess maybe he's, he could still be hiding. They're lurking in there like a ghost. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. being We were just talking yesterday about um, how our churches would have not said that they were religious. They would have said more that they were spirit filled or yeah. spirit led. And to be called religious really was like an insult. Like, yeah. like oh, you're, yeah. you're so religious. religious yeah. you know? That's what those Episcopalians are. Yeah, or the Presbyterians or anyone who is denominational. Right. It's like you were Orthodox and religious and Pharisee-like, you know, like we were spirit-led and spontaneous and let God do what he wanted and didn't try to put him in a box. And it was so, so self-righteous. Oh my God, the way. arrogance out of it, looking back on it. You know, I would have looked down my nose at you, Sam, because you didn't embrace the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, open up get the full gospel man <laughs> and and so yeah. that the arrogance of that like we've got more we're more and better than anyone else and and it's just oh god it's just disgusting it's really embarrassing to look back on. yeah it is yeah looking at it from the outside there is though something i i admire in this spirit-filled worship uh 
and the embrace of emotions. And because at least they're seeking a spiritual experience and a firsthand connection to God yeah. instead of just a secondhand relationship through reading the Bible. I could totally see that. That's actually. true. Yeah. yeah. And, and there is an element that, that, and that's, I guess that's why uh, a lot of our kind of people deconstruct is because when you are basing your religious experience, your it's, it's a relational, it's a transactional relational experience. And you're depending on that other party, i.e. God and Jesus doing their part, you know, being involved in this relationship. And over a period of time, when you see that over and over again, not come, not come true. For me, it took a lot longer than it should have, but more and more young people are waking up to the reality that there's no one on the other end of the line here. It's, it's a one-way relationship and it's completely dysfunctional. And why am I doing this to myself? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I used to pray every night for a word from God, like a sign or a word to, yeah. to hear the voice of God, to have that confirmation. Yeah. Me well, too. we, the, the difference between us is we thought we were doing it. I mean, we thought yeah. the thoughts in our heads were God's, were God's voice and he was speaking to us and, and we were, you know, but turns out we were just, thinking thoughts. And uh, Alice, a big part of your book is the purity culture, which also affected my life, even though, you know, I was in college when uh, Josh Harris's I Kiss Dating Goodbye came out. And at first I, I kind of scoffed at it and thought I was, I was different from that, but then I ended up getting drawn into that world later. And uh, I ended up marrying someone who was very influenced by that book and purity culture in general. So I, I feel like it traumatized a lot of people. It really did. I don't think that's an understatement at all. Mm -mm. Um, no, it's left like a generation of people with uh, a lot of symptoms that have a lot of overlap with sexual abuse, um, yeah. uh, like panic attacks from intimate touch, uh, crippling shame, suicidal shame from even just self-pleasure. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, re it really fucked with a lot of people. Um, I, again, I feel like I got off pretty lucky. Um, but that's also partly, I think, because I, I got out pretty young because of purity culture, it led me to, uh, what felt like I was facing an arranged betrothal because, um, for anyone watching, like basically the spoiler alert, I suppose. God told me. Don't spoil it. Don't spoil it. Make <laughs> okay. him read the book. <laughs> but yes, purity culture is ultimately the reason why I left. Um, it was the beginning of the end for me because I did everything right. And God did not hold up his end of the bargain. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it was probably my deepest betrayal spiritually. And that kind of set me on a course to just question everything. And it took me a little while before I lost my faith in full. Um, looking back, I would say that I went through like a progressive Christian phase for a few years. Um, cause I was still so scared of hell. To... I didn't, I just jumped out of the whole thing. You did. Yeah. I a said, lot of people do. Fuck this. I'm out. Yeah. No, for me, I was, I was really trying to, a friend I was talking to once said I was trying to make God in my image. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was, because I was just so indoctrinated to believe that if, if I didn't believe in God, I would go to hell. And that's really what kept me in my faith um, more than anything else, the fear of hell. Yeah. Well, you said you got off easy from purity culture, but I would definitely not say that. Okay. I mean, parts of your book are pretty horrifying as far as what happens to you toward the end of the book. 
as a result of these, these beliefs that were foisted upon you. For myself, I got married young. I had four kids at a pretty young age, then got divorced and was a single parent of four kids for 10 wow. years. So purity culture is part of, it's one of the factors that had a big effect on my life, even though I didn't see it at the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I did actually write Josh Harris a letter at some point that he ended up making into the foreword of the second edition of I Kiss Dating Goodbye. So I have that connection to that book. Wow. In, in the letter, I, I described how I didn't like the book at first, but then when I actually read it, I found it just agreed with basic Christian beliefs. And he liked that. But that is one thing I'll say too. I don't think purity culture was much of a departure from what came before it. It's really the same beliefs just applied to a different time, different context. Yeah. That's what I always thought. Like, I feel like, um, I, I feel like I, I tend to look at things very literally and very black and white. Uh, it's, it's difficult for me not to, and I make conscious efforts to try to find more gray areas today, but I honestly felt like I kissed stating goodbye was a more true Christian interpretation of what Christian romance should look like mm-hmm. because it was actually yeah. biblically based. A lot of people I think give Josh Harris an extra hard time for being like, oh no, you just wanted to assert your patriarchal idea of romance onto young people. And it's like, God is patriarchal. He was just, uh, mm. you know, showing what's in the Bible that maybe you didn't actually read all the way. And he certainly did. Um, and so I kind of thought, yeah, it made, it made a lot of sense to me. It didn't make me feel good, but when does God make you feel good? Um, in the Bible, like you're not supposed to feel good. Uh, well, no arranged <laughs> marriages. That was the patriarchal old Testament norm. And there wasn't dating and there wasn't romance and there wasn't falling in love. It was just yeah. This is an this is an, is no an arrangement that works works well for both families. So here's your husband, here's your wife. I mean, Josh Harris is he was really being very liberal and unbiblical to not endorse polygamy. Yeah, <laughs> true. Exactly. How <laughs> <laughs> many concubines do I get? True. <laughs> but I certainly, yeah, like you said, Alice, uh, Josh has gotten perhaps some unfair blame over the years because he was simply presenting what we were all taught from the elders that we respected. And Dave and I were able to meet him in Nashville a couple of years ago and uh, and catch up. Of course, he's completely changed his views now. So that's been great to see. And he was just a mouthpiece for a bigger movement. I mean, he yeah. what the hell did he know about any of this? He was 20, 18, 19, 20 years old. He, he didn't have any life experience. He didn't have anything to draw from. He was just a mouthpiece. They put him up on the stage and said, here, write these. I mean, he wrote the book, but it, it was the culmination of what he had been told, he was brainwashed himself. Yeah, I was the same way in some of my early writings that I came to regret years later. So yeah, definitely the same situation. Alice, near the end of your book, you say something about how you were saved by the seven deadly sins. (laughs) And I thought that was brilliant. Oh, thank you. (laughs) There's an idea that people change their beliefs or leave Christianity because they want to sin. And I think all of us would, would agree that, no, that's not the case. You can't really choose what you believe. No, I've, I've said before, and I maintain this, like, you know, I'm open to changing my mind, but I just don't see evidence of this, that I don't think faith is a choice. It, it may be for some people, I can allow that, but it is mm-hmm. definitely not a choice for everyone, whether the choice is to believe or to not believe. I, I did not want to be an atheist. I desperately wanted and needed 
God to be real for my entire existence to make sense. And it was a very, very painful unraveling when that was not the case. And I've had to um, make a lot of efforts like piece some worldview back together to make me even just want to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and not everyone, not everyone goes through such an extremely traumatic breakup with God, as it were. Some people are just like, eh, I just yeah. stopped believing and moved on. But for other people, and certainly for myself, it was, it really was devastating um, and psychologically just shattering. And um, I was in therapy for, for a long time after that, because I, I didn't know, I, I still don't know the point of life. And it's something that I've learned to embrace and find beauty in. I do. But I it, it it, oh, please, please show me. The <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, and I, I, I found that, I found that like, I get to make my own point to life. Yeah. And I did it. not that want that it. responsibility, but it took me years to get used to even just the idea of like, life is meaningless and I'm the one that has to mm-hmm. make meaning of it. You know, it did not feel like a gift. It does now, but it well, really that's the point. Religion—that's why religion has a, such a foothold—is yeah. it gives you the answers. You don't have to think. Yeah. Here's here's what you believe. Here's how life works. Here's here's ABC. Do these things, and this is what you will get. Instead, life is chaotic and random, and, and there is no formula to it. You have to make it happen yourself. You have to make your own purpose. When people say, "How do atheists find meaning and purpose in life?" That's the point. We do. We make our own. No one is dictating that to us. So our responsibility is, what do I want my life to look like? What kind of meaning and purpose am I getting out of it? And if it's not what I want it to be, if I'm not writing the story I want to write, if I'm not happy with the story that's being written of my life, then write it yourself. Take the pen out of whoever's hand you gave it to. Parents, peer pressure, um, churches, God, whoever, and write it yourself. You are responsible for the content of your story. And we get to decide what that looks like, no one else. And that's that's when we take, when we let go of religion, when we, when we lose that faith, there is a disorientation, a trauma, if you will. Now what, how do I manage this? Yeah. I have no one telling me what to do, how to think, what to believe. And it takes some time. And I would say maybe some people never figure out, but if once you figure out that you get to do it now, that it's, it's on you and that's daunting, but at the same time liberating, that this is me, I have the responsibility and I bear the consequences of my mm. choices for good or bad. And, and the credit. And the credit. And mm-hmm. so there's no um, pray a prayer and, and repent and, and escape the consequences. No, when I make a bad decision, then I bear the weight of that. And there's no God that I can fluff that off on. But that's also the credit when I do good things and when I figure out that I've got uh, something in life that's that's valuable, I don't pass that credit off to God. Mm-hmm. I get to take it myself and mm-hmm. that feels good. And that's part of the meaning and purpose that we find in life. The dying out loud work I've done in the last three years is some of the most rewarding stuff I've ever done in my life because I realized that I've been able to impact people in a positive way that I wouldn't have ever connected with prior to that without that. So I take great joy in that. And, and I, I don't, I don't have to say, well, it's just God, you know, I give God the credit. No, You're it's just not. his tool. I know. His no willing tool. tool. He's just a tool, man. Yeah. <laughs> so for my listeners who might not know, Dave, you were diagnosed with ALS three years ago yeah. and uh, you began this 
this ministry, shall I say, dying out loud. <laughs> yeah. So I'm still a pastor. Yeah. So what, what all have you been doing uh, lately? Well, I uh, have been trying to get the book out and printed and, and, you know, out where people can get a hold of it. And that's, I'm finally getting some traction on that. Um, scheduling a lot of stuff. We're here at a beach house that we've been planning for months with uh, a lot of good friends. Alice joined us from California. We had someone flying from Maine, someone from Seattle, a lot of, a lot of friends you know from Nashville, Sam. And um, we've just been enjoying a really chill, uh, laid back week of just uh, enjoying each other's company, playing games, um, enjoying uh, pharmaceuticals, shall I say? Um, things like that. Plant medicines. Plant medicines, yeah. You know, plant, a mix of nature. Oh, plant therapy. I know you know some things about that, Sam. Um, but yeah, other, other than that, we've got a busy schedule coming up. I'm, I'm traveling to, Bevan and I are traveling to California in a couple of weeks to do some speaking in, to groups out there. Um, scheduled to speak at the American Atheist Conference in Atlanta on Easter weekend and other conferences later in the year. So just doing a lot of that. And I also have my weekly YouTube live stream call-in show with Genevieve, who I finally got to meet here at the Beach House. Great. She's been here She's for awesome. a few days. Isn't she amazing? She is. We've been doing this show for months and we never met in person until a couple of days ago. So we, we do that every week. Um, so yeah, just I've, I told someone recently, I, I got diagnosed with a terminal disease and retired and I've never been busier in my life. <laughs> it's true. It is amazing, yeah, how your, how your life has opened up. Mm-hmm. in these years yeah yeah well you you brought up psychedelics i actually had had that on my list to ask you if you've <laughs> had any psychedelic experiences yet because after you know reading the things about terminal cancer patients having experiences with psilocybin mushrooms and such i always thought that would be interesting if you were able to have something like that so have you had that opportunity or not yet well i have the opportunity there are plenty of of choices but I've not partaken of them. I'm not, I'm not really afraid of doing it, but I'm not really anxious to do it either. Mm-hmm. I kind of, I kind of am okay with the headspace that I'm in every day. Yeah. I'm not really anxious to, to get to some other headspace that I might not like. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm going to do a lot of that or, or any of that. I may try it one time just to say that I've done it, but I haven't really indulged if you will I mean I've done some gummies and some mushrooms but nothing that's really had a major you know wow impact on me yeah and I I would recommend if you do it to be in a setting where it's like a healing retreat setting Mm -hmm. yeah I've been told yeah where that's the main focus instead of just uh you know walking down to the beach and well you kind of need a guide up cold yeah you need it you've we talked about this before you need someone there to guide you and to make sure you don't, you know, walk off a cliff or walk into the ocean or whatever. How about you, Alice, any psychedelic experiences or just cannabis? So my, my experiences with psychedelics are some of the cut material from my book Mm. because um, it had a profound effect on helping me understand mystical experiences. I never got slain by the spirit, but I have tripped acid and tripping acid helped me understand what people may have been experiencing when under the influence of God, which I now think of as 
of um, hypnosis, placebo effect, and all of these other, other things that psychologists and neuroscientists and other people way more intelligent than me have done research on. And we have like brain scan images to show for it. So I think understanding psychedelics and experiencing psychedelics definitely gave me a lot more understanding and compassion for people of faith who have had those types of mystical experiences in a spiritual setting where it's been more soberly induced, but induced nonetheless, just through different means. Um, I'm really grateful. I always say that I'm really, really grateful to psychedelics because they make, they make mystical experiences accessible to all. You don't have to have any faith to take a tab of acid and you will definitely feel something. And it's, I think, uh, you know, I've talked to people who, who say, oh, you know, I used to be an atheist until I did mushrooms, you know, or until I did DMT or I did ayahuasca. And then, you know, I've become an agnostic or I've found God, or, you know, now I'm a Hindu or whatever. And I think for me, I'm still an atheist, you know, I've done these things and I'm still an atheist. And I think that it's, I'd love to one day know why humans have a capacity for mystical experiences. And the best theory I've come across is that it helps facilitate um, group cohesion, like a shared spiritual experience helps form a shared set of beliefs and therefore a set of cultural values and therefore betters our chances of survival as a species. And I think there hasn't been much that I haven't been able to trace to an evolutionary advantage when I'm asking like, why do humans do this? Well, it's because it helped us survive in some way, shape mm -hmm. or form. So I definitely take that approach when I, when I look at things that fall under a classically spiritual umbrella or what people call the spiritual, but I don't know. Like I, I, I definitely don't think that psychedelics are for everyone. Um, I think it's a, I think it should be a very personal decision. And, and I think from my experiences, yes, I've had good trips. I've had bad trips, but even the, the bad ones for me um, ended up actually being my best ones. Uh, I, I learned so much from them and they weren't necessarily pleasant. I wanted it to be over, but I, even in the midst of the peak badness, I had the wherewithal to keep asking myself, like, what can I learn from this? Mm -hmm. um, and that helped, that helped me just accept. Um, and so I don't know if, if for anyone listening has always wanted to feel God or the spirit or understand what people are talking about when they talk about the oneness or unity and interconnectedness, this was all just gibberish to me until I did psychedelics. Now, now I'm like, Oh, this is kind of what people were tapping into whatever, whatever this way of perceiving the world is. I get it a little bit more now and I can have a lot more compassion and, and patience with people who experience this spontaneously or not, because simply just because I can identify with it more, it makes more sense to me. Well, Alice has done some really good research and done a, um, some, put some, some uh, talks together. Uh, she gave one at the recovering from religion excursion last fall that we, we were both at and really kind of pulling back the curtain on the, uh, what we would, in our particular tribes, religiously, we would attribute to the power of the Holy Spirit, that his slain of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, those mystical, spiritual experiences that we attributed to God were nothing more than our brain responding to stimuli. Mm. And, and the research shows that clearly. And so it's a, it's a really cool, uh, for a lot of people who wondered, what happened? What was that? You know, when I was speaking in tongues, what the hell was I doing? It can really hinder a lot of people's ability to move forward. Yeah, it, did mine. You, it makes you feel stupid. Yeah. Like you were really, I, was I that stupid to think I was communicating in a spiritual language to God and he was listening to me while a hundred other people in the same room were speaking 
a different language slightly um, to the same God that he was hearing. I mean, it makes you feel like, how stupid could I be to think that was a real thing? But when you realize that your brain can respond in certain ways and move you into some different kind of space, you're not stupid, you're just human. And our brains work that way. We just don't understand how they work. So yeah. good work, Alice. Keep it up. Thanks. <laughs> uh, yeah, for me, my main experiences have been in on ayahuasca retreats yeah. and with ceremonies, using it therapeutically. Yeah, all my years as a Christian, I always wanted a spiritual experience and never had one. And to be able to experience that is amazing. You yeah. wanted them, never had them. Alice wanted them and faked them. Yeah. And yeah. I really had them because I was tapped yeah. in. <laughs> yeah. And I think they do, they do take the brain or the person to the same place that where some people get there naturally or through fasting or chanting different means. Right. And the plant medicines take us to a similar space. I would say they're very personally powerful and meaningful experiences. I would not explain them away as, oh, it's just my brain reacting chemically. I don't think that's a, a very colorful way to live, to, ex to explain it away. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm, I enjoy the personal meaning and the, the mm -hmm. power that it gives my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these experiences, they definitely have shifted me to a greater interest in spirituality, but just in terms of a more expanded consciousness like what we can get it can come in singing it can come right. through sex it can come through reading a good book mm -hmm. or looking at artwork so these are all bodily experiences as well but i would also use the word spiritual but not drawing a firm line between what is spiritual and what is bodily no i hear you i feel like the word you just used a second ago consciousness like that that word um to me kind of merges the two of the physical and the spiritual because we in part because it's still a question mark like what is consciousness there's still a lot of disagreement over what consciousness is and why we have it and what it's not and what it's capable of and i am fascinated by that sort of thing and certainly when we're talking about things like mystical experiences whether soberly induced or plant induced or whatever it is we're playing with consciousness we're mm -hmm. altering our state of consciousness and you know arguably we do it every night when we dream um, that's a mystical experience as well and that we don't fully understand. Um, yeah. I'm more inclined to think it's a byproduct of the physical than anything out there playing on or entering the physical, but that's just me. You know, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know any more than anyone else, but neither am I going to think anyone else knows more than I do, uh, is how I look at it. Yeah. Well, Dave has a uh, dying out loud and then Alice, you have dare to doubt. So can you tell, tell me a little more about that? Yeah. yeah. So dare to doubt, um, dare to doubt.org is a resource site that I founded in 2019 to help other people who are deconverting from religion or who are questioning their faith or who maybe have been out of their faith for a long time, but could use some help finding a therapist or a peer support group to process their journey. When I left my faith, it was like around 2008. And, uh, there was not the hash, there were not the hashtags that there are today like ex-evangelical or, um, you know, ex-Christian. Mm -hmm. um, it was a lot harder to find other people who had gone through something similar. And I built Dare to Doubt to try to make it just a little bit easier um, for people to find the many resources that are out there now. Um, and I built it in a way that's not just for ex-Christians. Um, there's 
there's eight different uh, spiritual backgrounds that I've kind of tailored dif- different resources to each page. There's like ex- uh, for one for people with a Mormon background, Scientology, ex Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, so there's different resources. And I also wanted to make it easy to find immediate care. Um, a lot of people, particularly LGBTQ people and ex-Muslims, um, to just name a couple, are a lot more at risk when they mm-hmm. come out of the skeptic or atheist closet. Um, they're more at risk of being homeless. They're more at risk of um, needing safety from their own families. And I wanted to make it quick and easy for them to find domestic shelters, underground railroad network support systems to help them, A, just find basic safety, just physical safety, you know, shelter, food, identification. Um, a lot of people who leave Scientology don't even have identification, never mind money or other things. And wow. fortunately, there are a lot of organizations that want to offer this immediate, very practical assistance, and then other ones that also will offer more long-term psychological support for them. So that's why I built Dare to Doubt. And um, yeah, it's up and running, daretodoubt.org. That's great. Yeah, it's been wonderful uh, reconnecting with you, Dave, and to meet you, Alice. Yes, thanks. Thank you.